You're listening to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. In this episode, we're continuing a recent session from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, Georgia, titled Prescription Drug Overdoses, an American Epidemic. Concluding the panel of speakers is Gil Kurlikowski, Director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy in Washington, D.C. Good afternoon. I particularly want to thank the CDC and Dr. Frieden for this invitation. It's a great pleasure for me to be able to be here uh, with you, and I appreciated the sense of humor. I was a little concerned coming from Seattle that Grand Rounds would be like Grey's Anatomy, but but, uh, I can see it's not. Let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing uh, in the Office of National Drug Control Policy when it comes to prescription drug abuse and the overdoses. It really is a whole-of-government approach. I'll give you our uh, office's authority, our federal perspective. And we were established, I know many of you know some of the history, but we were established as a creature of Congress in 1988. It was because the members of Congress were very frustrated that they couldn't point their finger at one individual and say what's going on with drugs in this country. And so our office was established. Its principal purpose, as you can see, is to do the policies, the priorities, and the objectives of the nation's drug control program. And we all have, I think in this room, we certainly all have many of the same goals. We're responsible, and the most important thing that I'm charged with is being responsible for the National Drug Control Strategy that comes out every year. It comes out by law in February, and we are updating the president's strategy now. His was released, President Obama's was released in May of last year uh, in the Oval Office and prescription drug monitoring programs that were mentioned, a number of other things surrounding the prescription drug problem was prominently mentioned. And frankly, and uh, several other uh, iterations, the prescription drug issue was not really very high on the radar screen. We coordinate uh, the federal drug control agency's activities. We also have international responsibilities, uh, and we establish for all of those federal components, and it's somewhere in the neighborhood of about $25 billion, and uh, almost 50 different federal components all have a stake in uh, the drug problems uh, nationally and internationally within the federal government. The president's policy is one that is science-based, and as you know from his executive order, the importance that he places on evidence and science. It is a public health approach to this particular drug problem. Two years ago, uh, almost two years ago, when I got the job, I did an interview, and I pretty much ended the war on drugs, or at least I tried to end the war on drugs, but that's been talked about a lot for almost 40 years since President Nixon uh, declared drugs public enemy number one. I felt it was totally inappropriate to talk about what clearly is a public health and a public education and a public safety problem with three words that fit well on a bumper sticker but really don't give the uh, level of complexity and discussion that's needed around, uh, around the drug issue. 
We also have within our office three signature issues, and as Dr. Frieden mentioned, prescription drug abuse. When I was getting ready for confirmation uh, and being briefed, and I actually think as a police chief I had kept up with a lot of data and uh, read a lot of research and was prepping well, and they said, well, you do know that more people die from drug overdoses, of course led by prescription drugs, than die from gunshot wounds. And I said, well, actually, no, I didn't know that. And then, of course, I went out and tested all my colleagues, police chiefs, sheriffs, prosecutors, judges, etc. So you know it well here in this room. The expertise that exists here is phenomenal. But to the rest of the public, the prescription drug problem just really wasn't there. We also, by the way, selected prevention because we know prevention works and we've learned a lot more about prevention, particularly in the last decade. And then, of course, drugged driving, which hasn't been as widely attended to in, the, in this country as perhaps in some other countries, but also had not been tested as well. The federal policy perspective on this is that we want to minimize the abuse but we certainly don't want to and have no intention of working for, directing, collaborating on efforts that will reduce these very vital, these very important medications to people that need them. That is not the answer. It has to be also a whole of government or this multifaceted approach and the collaboration among the federal and state and local partners. As Gary uh, uh, talked about from the state of Washington, everyone does have a huge stake in this. Next week we'll be in Appalachia for four days uh, in some of the poorest areas of the country where the prescription drug abuse has actually had horrendous effects. Let me tell you the four focus areas, the education, prescription drug monitoring programs, disposing of these drugs, and lastly, enforcement. We want to make sure, and I think we've done a good job with our partners at SAMHSA, our partners uh, at CDC and others, of bringing to the attention of the public the problem of prescription drugs. Sunday's New York Times front page piece, a number of other pieces that have been done, including the USA Today, about our uh, active duty military and our veterans also. Bringing this information about the medical use of these opioid painkillers, how they're stored, but particularly uh, how they can be disposed of in an appropriate manner. And then the importance of education for healthcare providers. And I think Gary discussed a great deal of that that's going on, and it's going on not just in the medical schools, but it's going on through CEUs and voluntary work and, and others, because it has become such a significant issue in the country. You can clearly see where the majority of the prescriptions for these analgesics uh, come from, either emergency departments or certainly the primary care offices. And we know how busy the physicians are. We know how little time they get with the patients, and particularly in an ED on a Friday or a Saturday evening. As a police chief, I spent a lot of time in the emergency departments because of particular incidents or officers being hurt, and I know how harried and how uh, busy everyone is. But the more education and information that they can have about uh, pain medication within those facilities, the better. PDMPs has been discussed, and we think that they are a good first start. We know that they're a great tool to identify. We also know that in looking at all of the different statutes that have been written and addressed around this, there are huge numbers of patient privacy and confidentiality pieces that have been written in. They're not made for the public to be aware. They're in many states, uh, law enforcement has no access to that database, and perhaps that's exactly as it should be.
but it needs to be a tool that is used and it has to be robust. We want states to have these operational PDMPs and that's why the federal government through several different grant programs provided the initial funding. They also need eventually to communicate across states because you know in your, as your neighbor uh, in Florida has become essentially the epicenter of pill dispensing, not just for the state of Florida and the tragedies that have occurred there to the people living in that state, but to people here in Georgia, Tennessee, West Virginia, Kentucky. We also have initial information is in looking at the PDMPs that they can be very positive and they can be very helpful. And we also know that uh, with e-prescribing and electronic health records that uh, more can be done, particularly in this area. We also know that bringing this to the attention of the public has been really very helpful. I think we were surprised, as was the members of the Drug Enforcement Administration and all of the state and local law enforcement agencies that participated in the take-back day in September. So it's one four-hour period, 4,000 sites, police departments, sheriff's departments, others all around the country, 121 tons of drugs taken back. Now clearly we recognize that those aren't all the most, uh, the drugs that are most uh, subject to abuse, but it did bring to the attention of a lot of people exactly what's in their medicine cabinets. A lot of legislation has stalled in the last year and there's been a lot of controversy in Capitol Hill about certain pieces of legislation. The Secure and Responsible Drug Disposal Act was passed by both houses. It was passed with bipartisan support and the president signed it into law and the Drug Enforcement Administration is now in the rulemaking process having taken information from a lot of people that are true stakeholders in this area, how laws can be written so that drug take back can be made easier so that it doesn't tie up law enforcement and so that it also can be done in a, in a very safe and environmentally conscious way. Proper medication disposal to be able to easily access and to uh, destroy these outdated products or the ones that are in medicine cabinets that are often uh, or can be subject to abuse and misuse. It has to be cost effective. The last thing we need to do is to add any added expense in this area in helping to dispose of these and to reduce the amount of drugs overall that have been available. You know from the earlier uh, discussion of the earlier chart, the majority of people that misuse and abuse often get them through someone else or from someone else. But I think it's important to recognize that these pill mills truly fall outside the legal limits of what's going on. Uh, I have seen a number of indictments, a number of cases that have occurred in the past, but also as a former police chief and uh, having worked with prosecutors and others, I know that these are oftentimes the most difficult cases. There's another important part of all of this, though, is that when these indictments do occur and when these arrests are made for people that are uh, overprescribing, that are clearly acting outside the law, I have asked the law enforcement agencies to go out of their way to explain to physicians exactly what the uh, standards were for that arrest. We don't want physicians to think that this is a particular case where a physician was merely trying to help, merely trying to, to treat within all of their guidelines someone who needed pain medication. These are so far outside and have, so far, and have clearly gone over the tipping factor of what would be considered probable cause that it should not be a worry and it should not be a concern for any, any patient that's operating within those guidelines. And law enforcement is not in the business of prescribing or practicing medicine, nor do they want to be. 
Our high-intensity drug trafficking areas, these are called HIDAs. We fund 28 of them around the country. We've charged them with the responsibility to help provide to law enforcement and to prosecutors the kind of training and information that they need so that they can recognize these criminal cases and make that decision. And the support for the prescription drug abuse related training programs that we can actually help law enforcement attend given all of the difficult budget problems at no cost and at very little time and travel so that more information can be made available to them. We do a lot of coordination. That's really our job. We're a small office in the executive office of the president, but we actually have uh, incredible amounts of, of legislative authority when it comes to the federal government. But we think that the answer, of course, isn't in the stick approach. The answer is in bringing people together, working together. That's why we have received such unprecedented cooperation and collaboration, not only in the prescription drug area, but in a host of other areas. We don't do the work. We're a policy shop, but SAMHSA does the work. CDC does the work. Many other parts of the federal government do the work. And we want to make sure that it's done in accordance with the president's strategy, that it's done in a way that uh, brings everybody to the table, whether it's the Department of Education, the Department of Justice, or all of those other federal components that I mentioned. It's been absolutely phenomenal to work with these organizations. SAMHSA uh, administers the drug-free communities, over 700 drug-free communities around the country. It's just a very small grant, about $125,000, to the really grassroots people that can put together coalitions that involve education, faith-based groups, uh, local law enforcement, and others. They can put together these coalitions that actually can provide sound information about preventing drug abuse. You can see they're all over the country, from our urban areas to our rural areas. Let me mention the National Youth Anti-Drug Media Campaign. A couple of you in the room are old enough to remember this is your brain on drugs with the two fried eggs. I can see some smiles. Uh, some of you are too young to remember that. But actually, uh, the evaluations of that program were not all that glowing. And so we completely revised and redid this program to give young people an anti-drug message that is one that is more holistic and it's age consistent. It comes from trusted caregivers. And it is not just our national media campaign, but it has been clearly picked up at the local level. It is a combined national and local approach, and it seems to work very, very well. And in fact, Above the Influence has around the same brand recognition right now that Coca-Cola, which I think has something to do with Atlanta, and Burger King have. So these are young people working with, uh, for example, the drug-free communities and many others that have picked this up to give young people the kind of armor that they need to make good decisions. And not just good decisions about preventing drug abuse, but also good decisions about diet and exercise, tobacco and alcohol. And also, of course, working with our National Guard partners who are so well regarded in this country. When they go into the schools in the uniforms, uh, in their uniforms, they can also provide this kind of information. It's been terrific to have this job for these last two years to partner with CDC, to partner with SAMHSA, and to partner with so many others. We really believe, I'm very optimistic, and I know some of you that, uh, especially after listening to Dr. Frieden's data, 
perhaps won't be as optimistic as I am. But I believe that all of these things working together, the four pillars, are very appropriate to helping all of us pull together to reduce this problem. I think our conclusions very much speak for themselves, but again, uh, I am delighted to have been here and to uh, uh, have this opportunity. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Public Health Grand Rounds from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, presented on ReachMD's series, Grand Rounds Nation. Be sure to join us again for the next episode of the nation's best Grand Rounds. Until then, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and thanks for listening.